big day in the life of St. John's with those of you being confirmed and received at this service. And after the service, we will gather in prayers of dedication for your beautifully renovated parish hall. And after that, I'll have the opportunity to meet with your vestry leaders as they continue to navigate the, um, the waters of your transition. Please know how much I give thanks to God for this congregation, how I admire the wise be beyond his years leadership of your associate rector, Andy Olivo, the strong, steady hand of your interim rector, Bruce McPherson, your gifted staff, committed and faithful lay leaders, and in particular, members of the vestry and the rector's search committee. They are undertaking holy, important work. And I hold all of you, all of you, in the highest esteem, you who are living, working, faithfully serving in the places where you have been called. I give thanks to God for all of you. As this Thanksgiving week approaches, I hope you, I hope you have the opportunity to gather with people you love and in their presence consider the many blessings of your life. It's a good thing, a discipline of taking stock, if you will, taking stock of the past year. What has happened since last Thanksgiving for which you are truly grateful? This practice of, dis of gratitude in all times and places, as the prayer book says, trains our eyes and ears and hearts to receive the gifts of each day and each year that we might otherwise miss. About this time last year, I was invited to preach for the girls of the National Cathedral School. There are Thanksgiving homilies, and I invited them to be the control group on the cathedral close uh, grounds. We wouldn't tell the boys at St. Albans. And uh, they were going to be the control group, and for 30 days, I invited them to write down at the end of each day what they were grateful for from that day. And I said, you know, you don't have to pretend to be grateful for the things you're not, but just to be mindful, even in the hard things, like if, can you find something that you're grateful for? And let's come back after 30 days and see, see what, if anything, is different about you. And I have this stack of letters that the fourth graders wrote me in response to this. Dear Bishop Buddy, thank you very much for coming to our church. <laughs> and then they would write to me about the things that they learned from this practice of gratitude. So I commend it to you. You can be the control group for the diocese. You can do this between now and Christmas and see if practicing gratitude will um, open your eyes and ears in ways that you might otherwise have missed. And yet, honestly, the past year, like any other year, surely has brought other dimensions of life as well, any manner of hardship and suffering to which none of us is immune and again, for which we need not pretend to be grateful. For some, hardships have been more acute than others, and some things that can and do happen in a human life, frankly, are so searing that we never fully recover. If that's been such a year for you or for someone close to you, I simply offer my deepest condolences and pray that you're surrounded by tenderness. I've just finished reading the extraordinary memoir of Dr. Elaine Pagels, whom some of you may know as the author of some of the most influential and, frankly, earth-shatteringly controversial books on the history of religion in the past 25 years with titles like um, The Gnostic, 
Gospels, you know, those secret Gospels that we aren't supposed to read. Adam, Eve, and the serpent, the origins of Satan. In her memoir, which as soon as I saw that it had come out, I immediately bought, is entitled, Why Religion? And in it, she writes for the first time in depth about her personal suffering, an extended season of grief brought on first by the death of their five-year-old son from a rare heart disease, followed within a year of the accidental death of her husband. And in that devastating time, Pagels was overwhelmed, she said, not only with grief, but with guilt as if she were somehow responsible for her death. She knew that wasn't rational, but it just wouldn't leave her. Shaken by these storms, she writes, I realized, and here's, here's the insight, I realized that choosing to feel guilt, however painful, offered reassurance that such events did not happen at random. If guilt is the price we pay for the illusion that we have some control over what happens, many of us are willing to pay it. I was. And to re release the weight of guilt, I also had to let go of whatever illusion of control it pretended to offer and acknowledge, hear this, that pain and death are as natural as birth, woven inseparably into our human nature. I was drawn to this theme, reflecting on the gospel text for the morning, which you might pull up from your bulletin and just peruse again as I speak. It, it comes from a portion of Jesus' ministry when he becomes somber, even grim, frankly, about the prospects for the future, this would not be the place to go for gratitude or uplift or consolation in Jesus' life. He is he's speaking a foreboding word to us now of buildings falling and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, a biblical tour of all the hard, horrible things that can happen and do happen and are happening in our world. And ever the, the religious historian Pagels asked, why does this surprise us? Why do disasters still shock us? And then she points out that in the Jewish Christian worldview, we are given a vision of God who is all good, who created as stated in the book of Genesis, a world that is very good. But if so, she asks, what happened to this world? Buddha declared as his first noble truth that all life is suffering, she writes. But Jewish and Christian theologians speak to us of the problem of suffering, as if it were some kind of alien intruder on an originally perfect creation. And all that just got me thinking, you know? Making me wonder how much our response to suffering affects how we live through it. 
which is another way of asking, what are we to do with it all? The pain, the loss. There's little to be gained from running from it, though you can't be blamed for trying. When it's not part of our experience, we just try not to remember that it's part of others and go about our lives. Sometimes it's so great we're completely done in, at least for a time. But then this moment occurs when we realize that uh, we're still here. We're still breathing. And what would it be like to accept now what we cannot change and learn what it has to teach us. And again, Buddhists are great teachers for Christians. Uh, Pema Chodron is a Buddhist writer you may know. Her books are worth having around you just for the titles themselves. Among my favorites, um, When Things Fall Apart. That would have been Tuesday for me this week. The Places That Scare You, When Pain Is the Doorway, The Wisdom of No Escape. You get the same theme of just hunkering down and walking through. There's a common misunderstanding among all human beings, she says, that the best way to live is to avoid pain and just get comfortable. But a much more interesting and kind and adventurous approach to life is simply to develop your curiosity, not caring whether the object is bitter or sweet, and to lead a life that goes beyond pettiness and prejudice and always wanting things to be perfect for yourself, you simply have to realize that we can endure far more pain than we thought for the sake of finding out how the world is, how it is, how it just is. If we're committed to comfort at any cost, she says, as soon as we come up against the least edge of pain, we're going to run. And we'll never know what's beyond that particular barrier or fearful thing. Now, Jesus, if you let your eye go to the very last sentence of that text, it's sounding very Buddha-like here, because he says, in suffering, you will experience the beginnings of, anyone have it? Birth pangs. Okay, any woman who's given birth can tell you that um, birth pangs, uh, they're meant to get your attention. You don't do anything with birth pangs. The baby's not coming for a long time. But when they come, about the only thing you can do is pay attention. Practice breathing and wait for the next one, which you know is going to be worse than the one you just had, right? And there's nothing to do, right? You're just going to go through this thing now. And as it turns out, that kind of paying attention requires everything you've got. And there's no running away. Breathing, which you take for granted most of the time, becomes essential. Location is important. So is the people you're with. You don't need a lot of things that we normally surround ourselves with, but a few essentials and a good backup plan. It's not a bad way to approach the harder things in life. And the message, if, if there is a point to all of this, would be simply um, to befriend this experience as best you can. Befriend 
yourself as you go through these times? Should the sky or when the sky comes crashing down and you have no choice but to face into it? You needn't pretend that it's not the catastrophe that it is, but you're still here going through it. And if you're open to the possibility and paying attention with a modicum of curiosity, you might be able to see and understand what Jesus is talking about, which is there is actually something else waiting on the other side. My sense is that in unsettled times, be they personal, or for us as a community of faith, or for the nation, for our species, we're always tempted to avoid this, this real suffering, and hang on to the suffering that we can manage because, it's, um, because it seems to be within our control. Jesus talks about false messiahs, you know, false teachers. I think there's also a kind of false suffering, which is little bits of suffering that we hang on to, like, like guilt. We can, we can live with guilt for a really long time and be completely stuck and not move anywhere. Or, um, or the kind of suffering that just spins round and round and round and round, but goes nowhere because there's no redemptiveness in it. As opposed to the kind that we face into the hardest thing and walk to see what's on the other side. In closing, I, I attended a workshop a, a few years ago led by the wonderful Benedictine nun, Joan Chittister. And she was speaking to us of God, not as one who does things for us or to us, but who walks with us as an encouraging presence. God, she says, is not a vending machine. God is not a gotcha God, is her phrase, waiting for us to fall short so that we can be punished but God who is always on our side. And one woman raised her hand to ask the question that we all at one time or another are asking, but how can we believe in this God, this good God, when there's so much suffering? And Joan looked at her straight in the eyes with all the compassion she had and said, my dear, my dear, suffering is life. It's the cost of life. It's not God's fault, it's not your fault. And life, while the greatest of gifts God can give, is hard. It breaks your heart sometimes. But my dear God is with you and for you, your best friend. Don't forget that. I don't know that we'll ever be grateful for the things that happen to us, but I do know that there is gratitude for having come through them. Gratitude sometimes for the person we become as a result of them, and gratitude that death can indeed um, allow birth to emerge. So John, St. John's Lafayette Square, I simply ask you to continue being who you are, continue being the church, the community where you and others can come to give voice to your aspirations and your concerns, where you can surround one another when you grieve and celebrate and to gather around the sacred stories of our faith. And together, whatever is happening with you now, Jesus is with you. And these are the beginnings of birth pangs. His life, death, and resurrection, his abiding presence with us is God's response 
to suffering with the most powerful promise of all, that there is always life on the other side. And for that, may we all this week give thanks.